expected anyway, right? <laughs> Especially when we start yeah. talking about the surveillance and yes. housing and whatnot. But um, but in the first instance, let me thank you and and welcome you. And um, it's really great to see you again. Um, Marissa, the last time that we were sharing a space together was at a, a nicer panel a couple of years ago around the doctrine of discovery. And I, um, as I explained to you, I, I have a podcast series now around issues that relate to the doctrine of discovery called What a Load of Colony. And, um, <laughs> and I, and the, the focus more recently around the podcast series has been um, around information systems and, um, and our sovereignty in these spaces and the spaces of information systems. Um, and the potential that we hold, the power that we hold, and the challenges that sit before us in those spaces. And, um, you know, we've had a great catch-up just now <laughs> before this, but as I mentioned in our catch-up, you know, um, it's become an increasingly relevant area for us. One, obviously, because of COVID, um, and people are much more dependent on, on digital information systems now. Um, and, and I'd say that that's only going to increase as far as I can see. Um, but also because of, you know, some of the things we've been going through with our forest estate and some of the conspiracy theories that popped up around that. And then of course, the, you know, the rise in the global right has kind of aligned itself also with a lot of kind of um, information um, oppression or inf information colonialism I don't know, yeah whatever the terms are but you know when we when we were first talking a couple of years ago hardly any of that was on our landscape and I, w I remember when we were having those discussions around the doctrine of discovery just having my mind blown when you took it into this digital space back then and um and in more recent months with everything that's come into our landscape, I've gone back and watched that panel again and thought, wow, wow, all of this has just become so right up in front of our faces. Um, it was always relevant, but it's come right up in front of our faces. So I'm really thankful, first of all, for the work that you do and the work that you've put into this space. Um, and, but secondly, that, that you've agreed to have another catch up. And yeah, as I say, it's great to, great to um, see you again and chat with you again. But I was wondering if it's okay with you, if you don't mind, like just letting our whanau know um, who you are and where you're from, your, a little bit about your people and your work. Sure. So, Leo uh, Sentimania, my name is Marisa Lena Duarte. I am a member of the Pasquayaki tribe in the United States, um, but my tribe is binational. We have an autonomous zone in Mexico, in, in the northern part of Mexico, and we have um, a federally recognized uh, native nation in the US as well. Um, I am an assistant professor in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona in the US, and I work on problems related to information knowledge and technology in native and indigenous contexts. And mostly I focus on Indian country in the US, but um, my work has, because you know information networks are global, yeah. my work has caused me to sort of make connections and understand this phenomena at a global scale. So that's a little bit about um, what I do in a nutshell, I suppose. 
Yeah. And, and you've talked to, um, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the work that you've done around this idea of network sovereignty as well. Do you mind like just having a, giving us a little bit, if you can, a little bit sure. of an overview around this concept of network sovereignty, because it's not something that we talk about too much here in Te Māori. Yeah, so the idea is that, so in the U.S., um, our Native nation, we have over 600 Native nations in the United States. Um, and the ones who are federally recognized, you know, I think we have, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head how many are federally recognized, but essentially they have a legal relationship with the federal government. And that legal relationship gives them the right to have control, legal control over their land, their territory, their waterways. Um, and arguably over the airwaves through which information and data travels. And so the concept of network sovereignty um, emerged for me when I started researching how tribes build out their own internet infrastructure in the absence of um, internet access. Basically, when the major telecom providers don't provide affordable or usable internet for um, their reservation communities. So these tribes build out their own um, and they control their own and they provi you know, provide their own internet. And in that process, they're able to speak back to federal law about internet regulation. And so they essentially exercise sovereignty over their internet network. So that's the concept of network sovereignty. Mm. So that's the sort of the legal concept that I give to people who study internet networks, but there's a deeper concept that I share with people who are indigenous. <laughs> and that is that the concept is actually find, find its heart in the reality that we are peoples. We're inherently sovereign. We don't need a Western government to tell us, oh yes, I recognize you as a nation. We are, we are a people and we already manage and regulate and shape the proper ways of discourse with each other, of sharing information and knowledge and data. You know, and it's very subtle and sometimes it's overt, you know, maybe certain people in the tribe are in, you know, have a right to certain kinds of information, ceremonial information. Maybe some people are trained in other ways, like, for example, a family that may be very good at fishing, trains everybody there to be good at fishing. So they have a specialized knowledge. That's a kind of network sovereignty as well, where it's recognizing our kinship and our relationships with each other and how to share information, knowledge in a beneficial way a way that's beneficial to the people through our existing relationships. So that's, that's the secret sauce to network sovereignty, the technical aspects of network sovereignty. But that's kind of the stuff that I, I so far um, uh, in my experience, people who belong to tribes who belong, who are indigenous appreciate that at a, a whole other level. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think a, a lot of the discussions for us have, in the area of data sovereignty have been around, you know, who's storing our information, who gets access to our information, where is that information being stored as well. Um, but like, there's this whole kind of other area around data mining. Um, and, and, you know, for, yeah, I, I keep on kind of switching between those ideas of data mining and extraction extraction from from us extraction from our minds because we've always we're, we're talking often about how you know the government will come to do research and that's like a form of mining they'll research us and, and mine our minds and mine our indigenous intellects but also you, you you know you've delved quite deeply into this issue of data mining and how it relates to indigenous peoples as well and 
um, as I recall, you know, when we had our panel discussion, you were talking very much around these ideas of entitlement um, that carry across from this doctrine of discovering psyche and mentality and then are transplanted into these concepts of data mining. Do you mind having a bit of a chat with us around that? Sure. So the doctrine of discovery, the, the, the premise, right, is that um, a, a civilized man is allowed to go into an uncivilized land and take whatever he sets his eyes on that appear to be um, belong to no other civilized God-fearing person. Mm. I should correct that. Belong to no other civilized God-fearing man. <laughs> yeah. And so that doctrine of discovery um, was what justified, you know, Christopher Columbus naming, you know, and taking of portions of the Americas and also the Spanish, you know, um, uh, Hernan Cortes and Oñate and all the Spanish explorers who took in the Americas. And, um, uh, but I, I mean, I would argue that, you know, yes, the doctrine of discovery is, it's, we sort of point back to the Roman, it was, it was a papal bull from the 15th century. We point back to that, the Holy Roman Empire, you know, and it's sort of um, breach. But um, in terms of indigeneity, it was happening before that, you know, who gets to be civilized and who gets to be a barbarian. It's like, basically, it was a Roman church um, codification of conquest, of the right to conquest. Mm. And the idea is that through taking, one can um, promote warfare in distant lands that allow for conquest, allow for a people to be conquered. And so, um, so that's the idea of the doctrine of discovery and what it, you know, what it, with regard to, you know, data and data mining, um, as it is now, if you understand sort of how data mining works, um, uh, sort of some of the more nefarious ways that it works is that, you know, we, uh, ordinary folks might like use Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, you know, we use social media to keep up with each other. And we, used, we play Xbox with each other. Our kids play Xbox with each other. And um, these different companies will collect this, what they call metadata. And that's data about data. So they may not uh, necessarily collect a full profile of, say, me, you know, um, but they're interested in things like, why did you buy socks in March, you know, on Amazon? You know, why did you um, chat with your cousin about death? in April, why did you, so it's these little tiny bits of data that are around the content that they collect and aggregate to create these profiles. And supposedly those profiles are to create a, a better uh, advertising experience for us. So if you ever go onto like a website and it says, click here for better advertising that's customized just for you, you know, or you, or you go to a website and it says, click, our site uses cookies, click here to accept, you know, if you click on that, you're allowing them to collect that metadata about you. And then what ends up happening is they resell it to a third-party data broker who creates what are called data doubles. And those data doubles are then used to generate profiles that can, can, be, can be resold, and once again, for nefarious means. And as indigenous peoples, those nefarious means can include things like um, withholding uh, loans, bank loans, so when you try to buy a home and you go to get one, you know, and they sort of have this, like, they're treating you a certain way. And you're like, why am I, they, why am they, why are they treating me like I'm this irresponsible, terrible person? Because they did a background check and a credit report and they looked at your social media trace and they determined that you keep unsavory company and therefore they don't want to give you a bank loan. Mm. 
Uh, same thing for our um, our people who um, maybe are caught with a misdemeanor, you know, and they need to go on probation, and they go through this probation calculator that maybe includes some of these traces of data about you, you know, and about your family, and and all of a sudden your probation is denied or extended or challenged, you know, it comes up in all sorts of um, unpleasant ways. It comes up uh, around student loans. You know, when young people try to get student loans to go back to school. Um, and so it's really nefarious. In some countries, like in China, they actually have uh, every citizen has a number. It's kind of like a, a, a social credit score. And that social score is what gives people the right to even eat in certain restaurants, you know, um, to um, go to certain shop in certain locations, to purchase certain items, you know. And if they are friends with people who have a lower score, you know, it's, um, it can sort of be a penalty against them. Mm. So a person all of a sudden doesn't want to take their friend out to eat at a fine restaurant if that person has a low, their friend has a low score because then it could lower their score and they might lose out on the benefits of being part of a certain class of society. Mm. So that's, that's what data mining is right now. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, really, um, it's, really, it's really something that we need to be aware about as indigenous people in particular, as it's associated with genetic testing, uh, as it's associated with contact tracing and COVID, amid COVID-19 and public health services, um, as it's associated with proctoring software for our young people who are doing distance education and taking their exams online. You know, um, it's associated with all sorts of technologies that many of us sort of use and we feel like they're harmless, but they actually are creating an aggregate harm. Mm. And like, because some of what you're talking about has, um, has come into, you know, the white stream, mainstream, whatever stream we, we call it, consciousness through um, more recent discussion, like the documentary, The Social Dilemma, and it, it creates that avatar of that boy, which, you know, one of the, I immediately thought of you as soon as I saw that image that they were using of the avatars, like, that's the data double that Marissa was talking about how did, did you have any kind of like reflections on on the on that documentary do you think like what it said was on the mark or do you think it fell short in, in any areas i think that um i think it's i think it's really important that it aired on you know it's it's publicly it's fairly accessible yeah you know it's not pub, totally publicly accessible it's fairly accessible i think that's really important because i do think that people need a way to understand you know, exactly how this is sort of playing out. In terms of detail, I feel like I am in the weeds on the topic um, because I, I have the honor of working with colleagues who are involved in developing those algorithms and examining them very carefully. You know, um, folks who work, who work in industry labs and push back from inside against things like facial recognition. Um, I uh, also learn from people who are... Uh, you know, who are indigenous and who are saying, you know, we actually need to, before we can even say no to these kinds of data mining, we have to understand what it can do for our own people. You know, that's kind of the heart of indigenous data sovereignty is the idea that it's not that we're saying don't do research, you know, you know, on, for, by, about indigenous people. It's that we need to have command of that so that we can analyze it more appropriately so that we can come up with better solutions. You know, it's, it's not an anti-scientific or anti-technological argument. It's very pro-science and pro-technology, you know? So um, 
So I, I would argue that, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's, it's fine. You know, I know that there are editorials out there now arguing that here's kind of a little pushback at the social dilemma critiques. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's part of the dialogue that we need to be having. And as usual, as indigenous people watching these things, you know, they haven't been rendered with us in mind and our particular exactly. plight in mind. So we already have to like <laughs> rate kind of, reevaluate everything we see and say, well, how does that play out for my family, my community, my tribe? Exactly. You know, we already have to do that work. Yeah. Um, if one could be made for indigenous people, yeah. it would be leading much... into my next question. Is yes. if you were to do an indigenous version, what would that look like for you? We need to do an indigenous version. Yeah. And an indigenous version would essentially um, depict these, uh, these nation states that oppress us as sort of the the empire that is taking from us you know that subjugates knowledge about us that promotes misinformation and disinformation about us to further the power of the nation state they yeah. it's um there's a scholar his name is brian masumi and he sort of uh defines this this word this concept called onto power and onto power is a combination of two words one is ontology and one is power and ontology is like um it's an entire worldview it's the in, entire sort of like a meta universal worldview that one has so indigenous peoples get this because we can say things like i can say this is a yaki ontology like you, when you're speaking yaki in yaki land behaving yaki with your yaki cousins you're a yaki you know yeah. and when you're uh, speaking navajo in navajo land with your navajo cousins you're a navajo you know that's an ontology you know um do Americans have an ontology? You know, I think they would say they don't. I think they, and in their saying that they do not, you know, they're claiming and making a world, a global claim that they are the blank slate upon which everything should be measured against, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the colonial power says. The colonial power says, we are the ontology. Indigenous people are backward. They are lesser than. Their philosophies are, are not advanced enough. I mean, they say all these things. They leverage that onto power against us, but the way they leverage it is through this, these um, inaccurate depictions of us, through pretending not to read between the lines of the treaties, you know, um, this sort of subtle constant taking. I mean, I think I've been following what's happened at the University of Waikato mm. with the students, you know, and the faculty there, and um, how many indigenous students have this experience where you feel like your professor is like mining you for information yeah. and you worry that they're gonna write about you later on and you don't wanna ask questions. And so because you don't ask questions and you turn inward in this self-defense, you're also shutting yourself off to a certain kind of learning. You can't be open in that space. You cannot trust your professor. You know, and then they wrote, then they write about you in that way. And then, yes. and then you're the problem because you're not opening up and you're the problem because you're closed in or, or that you're dumb because you don't have questions or, you know, in all of those things and not taking that into account. There's absolute, like I literally heard that from some of the students. You know? Yes, exactly. And so that, that would be part of our story. I mean, we would say, this is kind of like what I say to a lot of my colleagues who are technologists who are now like, oh, we have this global surveillance apparatus and it's really terrible. Oh my God, how did it start? It's the far right. And I'm like, no, it's not the far right. It's you. <laughs> it's you who, who really believes in the nation state as the answer to modernity, as the answer to humankind. You know, and we as indigenous people have never believed in the nation state as an answer to humanity or to dignity. 
you know, we have our inherent sovereignty and that has worked for us for a really long time. And so that's why to me, like a lot of the stuff right now about social media surveillance and global surveillance, it's just another kind of tool of conquest in um, sort of another form. Yeah, it always kind of like, you know, it's um, similar to climate change. It's one of those things where this is something that's been happening to us for a long time, right? You know, like the, the colonial fiction of its own legitimacy is a 250 for us, 500 year for you, long disinformation project you know that we've that we've been putting up with now for centuries and now that disinformation is starting to impact upon colonial groups and colonial communities as well they're all like oh we've got to do something about it yes, exactly. <laughs> and with climate change we're like well you know we've been you know people's entitlement to our well-being and our futures like the denial of our future and the way of our, of our way of being and and our health and our food systems is something we've been fighting now for you know but now you guys want to know what to do about it because it's impacting you you know and and i kind of felt the other day i just wrote that up i was like if people are really that worried about disinformation how about starting off with the centuries old disinformation of colonial governments that they're legitimate <laughs> on indigenous soil that's a disinformation and misinformation you know, project in and of itself, right? And and that's not generally one that people want to talk about, even now while we're talking about all of the other misinformation projects, eh? Yes. And the funny, the really funny part about this, and maybe only, I, I'm going to use that word on purpose, funny, okay, is that we can laugh about it because we have like, we have sort of survived it. We can see it. So what, to me, what it feels like is like I'm seeing these technologists who are from Silicon Valley, who are from in these very elite places in the world who are just like, oh, this is so terrible. I can't believe I played a part in this. And the part of me that's very like resistant and decolonial, right? The Yaki woman, the Yaki girl inside that grew up throwing mud clods and like laughing is just laughing and laughing. <laughs> and there's this deeply profound, I told you so, we told you so. And that laughter is actually... You know, it's not meant to be obnoxious. It's actually our strength because we're now unafraid, right? It's not terrifying that this is happening. Yes, it's terrifying when the misinformation and disinformation results in bodily harm, in physical violence, in psychological suffering, because it does, you know? Um, it's it's kind of like the phenomena that underlies missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, you know, is that it's the predatory behavior before sexual assault is cyber stalking and cyber grooming, you know, and social media platforms and things like that, you know, um, the distribution of pornography, you know, and through these networks that sort of exoticize indigenous, you know, uh, women and, and, you know, all kinds of people, actually, not just women, but in really awful way, colonial ways, right, racist ways, that, um, that is the predicate, right? But the fact that we can sort of like, we live through that every single day, and we can step back and just sort of be like, and then we look at our, our, our cousin, right? Or we look at each other and we're like, all right, well, then this is what we're going to do, you know, and be light about it. That is a weapon. That is our, that is our strength, our fortitude. It's a trust that we have in each other that we can have different emotional registers. We're not gonna get stuck in sort of the apocalyptic, uh, the world is ending kind of mood, you know? Uh, Cause we've already lived through an apocalypse, I gather. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that. But also, like, um, within that space, you know, um, th there's also a a level of susceptibility as well for our communities, right? Because we we come pre-prepared with a distrust of the media. We come pre-prepared with a distrust of the government and pre-prepared with a distrust, especially of colonial science at, at least. And some of us only see science as colonial science. And so, you know, with these, those kind of, that being the, the holy trinity of conspiracy theory bases, <laughs> their media, the government and science, for many of what I've, one of the things I've seen in our communities is that they can make us actually quite susceptible to some of that other misinformation, which is completely not about us and it's not to our ends, but we, but we can become really fertile soil for some of those spaces. Have you seen that where you are as well? Definitely. I mean, one of the worst places that I've seen it has been in people who are refusing to follow the social distancing recommendations, native people refusing to follow social distancing recommendations in the U S and in Canada, because, you know, when it first sort of the, the outbreaks were, were first sort of happening here, um, there were a lot of people who were saying, Native people who were saying things like, uh, as Native people, we are strong, we just need sunshine and fresh air and we will be fine. Or uh, get that colonial disease out of here. Um, if we just stay on the reservation or the reserve or keep to ourselves, it's, it's a white man's disease. You know, I mean, just these sort of like... Um, uh, some of them were relying on stereotypical tropes of the indigenous person being naturally physically robust. You know, um, people saying things like, I've never had a cold a day in my life. I'm not going to get sick, you know. And others were saying things like, all I need is my traditional ceremonies and they will protect me. And, um, and sadly, that is not what happened, right? Um, Navajo Nation, uh, Choctaw, Mississippi... Uh, a number of Native nations have just suffered in the U.S. and in Canada at rates that are far beyond any other, that of any other group, you know. Um, and uh, part of that is because the Native peoples in the U.S. and in Canada um, were already physically unwell. You know, we have high rates of diabetes. We have uh, chronic underlying conditions. Uh, we have folks who suffer from substance addiction, sub substance abuse and addictions and depressions and all sorts of poor, just, you know, not really practicing exercise and fitness. Um, and also who lack education about how viruses and colds spread. Yeah. So, you know, the combination of those things, a lack of education, a pre-existing poor health outlook, you know, and sort of an obstinacy about what it is to be indigenous um, just sort of culminated in some really terrible situations for a lot of tribes and a lot of families. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's ongoing, you know, um, fortunately, tr many of the tribes began, you know, in about April, May to kind of push out messaging, um, in different languages about, you know, wear masks, wash hands. This is our way of life, protect your elders, that kind of thing. But it took a while for it to happen. You know, because even our many of our tribal leaders just were really caught by surprise. They didn't have a public, a tribal public health plan, emergency plan in place, you know, mm -hmm. for something like this. So, um, so yes, I would say that um, even though we have this strength as indigenous people, as you know, in be belonging to each other and caring for each other, you know, um, we also sadly have high, you know, very high rates of people who have lack basic digital literacy, 
yeah. who don't understand what privacy is and how to protect it in online spaces, um, who don't understand that you should probably protect your children from screen time and not put photos up all the time. Lots of our uh, young people post selfies all the time. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, not wearing very much clothing and whatever, because uh, they're trying to like just maybe flirt online. It's cute, you know, they're trying to look a certain way and they don't realize that that those images are being used in a really ugly, sexually violent way against them, you know, and against the people. So it, it requires a level of reflection, of digital skill, of digital literacy that we need to deliberately infuse, you know, into our communities. It's an active education process we need to take up to kind yeah. of prevent this, this violence, the data violence, the actual violence. Yeah, because some of, you know, just even looking at the way in which our information scape, and we've discussed this on the podcast previously as well, how, how we moved from, you know, like a thousand in the 90s, a thousand terabytes of information flying around to billions of terabytes of information flying around and, and, and coming at us from all angles, like on the phone, on the laptops, in the smart TVs, and these things are also playing now, even, even in, in urban areas, you're on public transport and they've got this information stuff coming at you with the screens on the public transport spaces and all, you know, all of the, the information scape just in the last 20 to 30 years has changed so radically and, and we, we haven't really caught up in how we respond to that. But, you know, and I've been thinking a lot lately around how, you know, uh, in, in a customary space, the way that we treated information was so respectful and, and, and it was a set, you know, information was respected as, as a source of power and enlightenment was something that was stepped out and supported. And, and now it's just like this open slaver, right. With, with little, and, and that for me feels like a vulnerability for us. Yeah, it very much is. You know, one of the, the issues that I've been concer most concerned with in the wake of the COVID-19, the first two waves of pandemics here in the U.S., is that um, it's really revealed how few of our Native people have internet at home and how few of them have laptops at home. Um, and so um, on the one hand, you know, some technologists would say, oh, that's good. They're not being surveilled. And I'm like, no, we are always surveilled. We've got the social worker, the priest, the anthropologist, we've got the tribal police, we've got the feds, we have every, you know, the corporate, the entrepreneur, teachers, the, teachers, yeah. the realtor, realtor, land developers, like we are always surveilled, you know. Um, but, you know, um, unfortunately, because we don't have access to the internet, we also don't have our intellectuals, our scholars, our researchers, don't have the means to disseminate a lot of these teachings you know, across their communities in ways that are digestible, you know, even things as small as memes, you know, um, even things like short podcasts or short videos, you know, um, short messages, public service announcements, you know, um, those things are, are not there if we do not have internet infrastructure, you know, um, radio only goes so far and it's really important for certain needs, but some of it, we need to visually kind of show people, you know, this is how you properly wear a mask you know, fitted over your face and your nose and your chin, no gaps, you know, 
So, um, so that has been sort of a, a, um, a stunning realization is that we, um, in the wake of that, I think what's going to happen next, I predict what's going to happen next is kind of like a socio-technical speculation where all these people will say, oh my gosh, there's a place of unclaimed digital territory all through Indian country and through poor communities. And so they will start innovating technologies to fill those gaps, to market to that particular audience, you know, very cheap laptops, um, very low cost cellular phone data plans that ultimately are not the most, the best use of money for people in, a, in households and things that have surveillance embedded into them, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of my, that's my concern is that there isn't um, adequate respect amongst the powerful, technologically powerful for the privacy rights, autonomy and self-determination of indigenous peoples mm. is the, you know, that's something we need to work on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about it, it, all of these things that we can work on, and I was talking with one of our, um, one of our elders about it the other night, um, Mark Corpor an uncle of ours and you know he was he said you know we do we do traditionally and uh, you know our ancestors did have ways of being able to process huge amounts of information and you know our dependency um upon western tools of holding on to knowledge has weakened our minds a lot but in our ancestors they could sit there and talk for days and go through all of the genealogies that, you know, and how everybody is related and then how you're, re how you're related to plants and how you're related to that bird and how you're related to that bit of land on the other side of the island. And, and so they could talk for days about that and hold these huge, so he said, you know, there are ways for us to be able to, not, not that, you know, we all have to go back to that space, but to remember that we aren't completely powerless in this space and that we do have these indigenous tools and also these principles of, of our houses of knowledge and, and as um, something that we can turn to, to look at how do we validate truth? How do we frame and validate truth, particularly when it's new truth coming into our space? What are the principles that we can draw from? And like, I'd love to hear from you, like, you know, what are some of your reflections around the strengths that we can draw from and, and the things that we have in front of us to be able to deal with some of this stuff? I think you just really outlined one of the greatest strengths, which is that we have the gift of time, that we really appreciate that data is not the same as knowledge and that information is not the same as knowledge and that ultimately all data finds a home in knowledge. And as indigenous peoples, it goes even further than that. We're not talking about knowledge. We're talking about ways of knowing and relating that the only way to know is to relate to something. And that's learning, which takes time, you know? And so this, the sort of colonial thirst for large data sets, you know, to do processing at this expedited scale, you know, they'll say, this is in the interest of science. This is how we sent men to the moon or whatever. And I'm like, well, then why are you using it to speed up that I bought socks and March on Amazon? <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, it, that's like a, that's a trivial matter that it's yeah. okay to take time on that. You don't need massive stores of information to sell me a better type of socks. You know what I mean? It's, so it's, it's kind of like a falsehood that they're selling us that this is in this, all this massive calculation leads to a better way of life. I, I fundamentally disagree. You know, um, I think that in certain things, it's very helpful, 
we uh, large scale data analysis is extremely important for coming up with global vaccination, you know, for COVID-19, you know, those kind of tools are extraordinarily helpful. But when it comes to things like prison recidivism calculators, mortgage loan calculators for our people, you know, um, um, it, it's that kind of, you know, that kind of thing is just, I'm like this, this, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, so I think that time is extreme. That is something that we have as Native peoples, that we can take time to make, to have these discussions, to have dialogues, to contemplate and think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we should not be tempted, as soon as somebody posts something on social media, we should not be tempted to respond right away. You know, we don't have to fall into the artificial clock of, you know, instant messaging, you know, immediately. You know, you can take time to give yourself time to think about things and learn things and consider what relationships mean, you know, um, that's sort of, to me, at the heart of who defines what, de- how we define how we are, you know, um, so I, that to me is the sort of the greatest um, um, kind of belonging that we have. And quite frankly, um, my experience being racialized in the U.S. is that that is not something that Americans have. They do not necessarily have that kind of belonging. We have private property here. We have individualism, but we do not have belonging and we do not have time. And we do not have the grace of time. There's just a constant drive for progress. And that's what makes an American. Mm. So I think that's something that uh, we should really slowing everything down, you know, just the, the whole slow it down step it out. Like we had this, we have this art form in, um, in Ngāti Puro, in our, in, in our people, mine in Napier's um, tribe, iwi, and it's called um, Pōrairangi uh, Pōtama, and it's this, and, and it's all about that ascent into knowledge, which was, and, and stepping it out, which was, you know, uh, to go out into the world, to have your experience, to see something, to see a phenomena, and then the process of taking that phenomena and, and sitting with it inside of your space and, and making sense of it. What does this mean to me as a Ngāti Poro person? What does this mean in relation to my whānau and then my hapu and then my iwi and my marae? What does this mean in my space so that you can see where it fits in your world? And then once you've figured out how it slots into your world as Ngāti Pro, then you can, then you're in a space to go back to progress and then go out again. And it's like this constant process, never ending process. It's an endless pattern. It doesn't have a beginning and an end, but it's just this endless pattern of going out into the world and then bringing it back and making sense of it and, and having to go through that process of making sense of it and making it sit in, well within you before you can progress to the next step as well. And that these things are, you know, it's an incremental process, but it's a stepped out and supported process as well. Yes, I, I, yes, exactly. There's a, this reminds me of another asset that we can bring as indigenous peoples. And that is um, literally territory. (laughs) We literally have places to do this in, you know, where we can say not all indigenous peoples of the world have this to be clear. But those who have autonomous zones, you know, or who know, even if you don't have an autonomous zone, you're removed from yours for whatever reason, who appreciate the need to have indigenous enclaves that we control collectively, that's the space within which to engage in this self-determination and collectively have this like internal discussion, not only this self-reflexive learning, but 
there, you know, and that's how we're going to self-determine, you know, how are we going to push back at in, uh, you know, wrongful data mining or the kind of data sharing that may not be entirely beneficial to our people or even things that we might want to participate in, you know, but we know that there's going to be some drawbacks to it. So, for example, let's just say that uh, you, um, a tribe or iwi wants to get together and go ahead and participate in some sort of clinical trial because of certain health conditions in, in, in different families, you know, but let, but let it be a collective decision. And that can, you know, relate to all the data sharing and communication around that experience. Um, the hard part for us right now, I think, is that we need to be able to articulate and connect how these things are interrelated and understand how out of control that can get when it comes to government data mining or corporate data mining, you know, especially around our social media traces and uh, online shopping experiences and banking and things like that. So we, that's something we need to learn together. And I don't think that as indigenous peoples, we should um, feel as though we are behind the curve on this. I don't think any people in the world really know what's going on because a lot of those formula are um, proprietary. They're, they're sort of behind these walled gardens and locked doors. And we, we need for our um, governments at all levels to crack those open, you know, so we can really see sort of what's happening. Um, yeah, so that's, again, as, as Indigenous peoples, I feel like we always have multiple levels of consciousness, like here I belong to me, here I belong to my family, here I belong to my people, here I belong to, I'm also a tricky citizen of the nation state, and here I am going to the UN, you know, so we're always operating in all these places. And I belong to, to the global Indigenous village. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and, and we need to sort of use all of that to kind of, um, um, sort of break open these locked boxes and yeah that was my next question market. you keep <laughs> jumping ahead of me. That, no, yeah. <laughs> that was my next question too is because you know because what we're talking about does exist in a global space like you know there's literally no borders not i mean the borders even in a physical space are colonial borders anyway but you know like there are when i think about you know, one, absolutely, we need to be, even even if we didn't have, for people who don't have their own whareinui or their own marae, the way that we do have, where we have our own space that we can protect and have our own internal conversations, it's just really what's occurring to me as you're speaking is how important it is for us to create that, even if we don't have it, we need to create those safe spaces to have this discussion. And and I was mindful, I was in a um, webinar with Steve Newcomb, a few months ago, and I and I asked him. I was like, "Well, when the doctrine of discovery is so ubiquitous, when it's everywhere, where, like, what's the pressure point for us right now? What is what is the front line where we need to be focusing our energy? Because our energy is already so thinly spread across so many different places." And he didn't even hesitate. He said, "Information systems." I was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> He said information systems, we need to really be keeping an eye right now. Like, you know, for him, that was the front line of, um, of something that we need to be keeping our eye on in relation to the doctrine of discovery is how it's playing out in relation to our indigenous knowledge systems, in relation to our, um, to the colonial information systems and how that impacts upon our knowledge systems not least to protect and look after the, the knowledge base that 
is so important at a planetary level and at, and at every other level as well and how, and how vital it is, but it, it's not done. We're not, you know, from what I'm seeing, we're not really front footing um, that discussion yet, but I feel like, you know, because we have, we, you know, Uncle Mark was saying the same thing before he goes, yeah, these things do lead to us being susceptible. We do come prepackaged with a distrust of the state, but it also means that we come prepackaged with this inquisitiveness that can be our power and this level of understanding of beauty. We don't need people to convince us that there are conspiracies at play. We're already aware of it. So we can skip some of those conversations as well, right? But just yes. how important it is for us to like be holding those conversations now. I'm getting to my question, <laughs> uh, which was, you know, when it does exist in this global space, in this other kind of transnational space, as well as there's these negotiations that need to be happening at a, um, at a national space as well. And of course, you would have seen the Christchurch call that originated yeah. here in, in Aotearoa as well. But there's some for us, discussions that we need to be having with our, with our own prime minister and government around how the Christchurch call relates to us as Māori. Um, and then, of course, there's the discussions for us to be having at our local sub-tribe and tribal levels as well. And so how, how you know, what is the strategy for us to be, do we straddle all of them? Is it a bottom up? Do we need to be focusing international? Like, do we need to have our lens at this transnational space? What do you think around that? I think that um, this might be kind of a overly brainy cell, but I think that um, cybersecurity is something for every family every day at this point in time. And cybersecurity you know, that is a, a term, you know, that's a, it's a whole field, it's an industry. And it feels like something that is far removed from everyday life. You know, it feels like that's something that some nerdy tech, ex, technology experts do. You know, I think it has to do with national security. I think it has to do with I, information technology, IT. I don't know what it is. It feels far away. But cybersecurity conversations in the family every day are conversations about things like screen time, about who our children get to talk to online, about what kind of apps we allow on the phone. You know, there are conversations about the phone bill, you know, the internet bill and how expensive it is. And uh, is it reasonable for our family, for our neighborhood? Are we being maybe taken advantage of in that regard? Um, they are questions about which of our family members have internet access and who don't and who needs it and how are we gonna get, make sure people have access to information there are questions about which people in our families or in our communities are watching a lot of really terrible stuff on television and in movies, you know, that are pervading racist stereotypes or that are selling a lot of disinformation and misinformation. Here in the U.S., Fox News is just, I mean, it's just completely untrustworthy at this point, but families are just sucked into it. Yeah. And they believe the information that's coming out of there. And it's just complete, a lot of it is completely erroneous or it's designed to trick and deceive. Yeah. My friend, know? my friend has a saying, um, a good friend of mine in Hawaii, she has a saying that, you know, uh, what you let in your mind shapes you as much as what you let in your mouth. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. So those kind of, those kind of conversations, I feel like 
they're conversations that a lot of indigenous families are already having, but they wouldn't maybe call that cybersecurity. But to yeah. me, that is cybersecurity, you know, yeah. and that is at the level that we can make decisions about, you know, in terms of, you know, the deeper commitments of the family, the deeper values and practices in the family and in the community, you know. Um, I think that there are certain groups that are more predisposed to certain of these conversations. So those um, for tribal governments or sovereign governments that have their own information technology departments, they have IT experts that can teach them about cybersecurity. And they should be sending those folks to, you know, conferences and so forth so that they can learn the most recent stuff. Because in the world arena right now, the wars that are happening are not just about economics and plunder. They're also very much about sending out foreign adversaries to um, rattle up citizens within nations. And indigenous issues are always the polarized topics that these actors settle on. You know, so we can think that we're building a social movement online only to find out that a lot of our adherents are trolls, are bots, you know, are sort of fabrications, fabricated avatars designed to sort of polarize the issue so that people actually don't agree with a lot of our premises or that they're trying to disrupt the potential for solidarity, you know, and for conversations and movement forward because they want to see these nations sort of crumble, right? Um, and that happens not only, I, I mean, I'm depicting something at a national scale, uh, to give an example here in the States, like four years ago, it was revealed that one of the, here in the States, one of the top most um, Black Lives Matter Facebook groups was actually created by Russian adversaries who were trying to polarize the conversation around Black Lives Matter to make, um, sort of bring the U.S. to its knees on the basis of the inherent racism of the country, you know? And so that was really shocking for a lot of Black Lives Matter activists and youth and students who were going to that page to kind of learn and make connections with people and try to figure out how to be part of an, a coalition to realize that they had been communing with, um, with people who weren't real, you know? Yeah. So, so that's those, I mean, that's a, that's a conversation for uh, separately our IT specialists to have, you know, as far as cybersecurity for tribal government, sovereign native nations and operations. And then we have another conversation for our activists, our indigenous activists to ask themselves, how do we shape trust and transnational indigenous organizing when we don't know everybody that's on our Facebook, in our Facebook network, when we don't know who all of our Instagram followers are, how can we insert more protocols of kin and belonging and commun communality, even across, you know, oceans and distance and time and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Because, you know, like, when, especially when you mentioned the word solidarity, because the, this theme of what we call kotahitanga, you know, our solidarity, our unity, our ability to come together has just been this constant theme of our discussions in previous months around, you know, our ability to be able to fight COVID, when we put up our checkpoints, our checkpoints depended on our community supporting it and, and having a shared understanding about the challenge that was in front of us. And one of our larger concerns was, well, now that there's all these conspiracy theories making people doubt whether or not COVID's even real, like how is that going to impact on our ability to be able to roll out any response, even if it's a sovereign response around checkpoints or let alone any discussions around a potential vaccination and what that might mean for our people. But this idea of solidarity and how solidarity can be compromised through, through some of these plants. But also, you know, you raised this really important issue of 
we, we don't even know who some, or, or we believe that we know. And one of the groups that has been, you know, taking myself and my cousins, they have these false accounts yeah. and there are people engaging in relationships, online relationships with these people. Well, f- false people, they're not even people. They're these fake accounts with fake photos and they're just putting all this kind of weird information out. And, and what we've seen is that, it's in our, it's, it's in, you know, this kind of, I guess, dual strategy of everything that you're talking about around upskilling ourselves and cybersecurity and, and going to these digital, into these digital conferences and having discussions and having a strategy um, at all kinds of different levels at the same time as we have these approaches of getting back into our communities and knowing our communities and personalizing our communications with each other so that, you know, cause it's so much more easy to dehumanize someone who's only ever an avatar online, but our, you know, our, I don't want to like, I don't like, you know, militaristic terms, but our secret weapon, <laughs> our yeah. response to that, that we have is our community are the yeah. spaces where, you know, as, as you'd said earlier, where we break bread, where we share our stories, where we share our commonalities, where we laugh because auntie farted in the corner, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what nourishes us through the, you know, through all of these um, uncertainty, because ultimately what a lot of these um, technologies are driving at, what what surveillance is trying to do is make um, subjects uncertain to make them uncertain so that they, and, and nervous and anxious so that they will give all their authority to the sovereign, to the king, you know? And, um, and so that whenever you're sort of like using these different technologies or devices or platforms, and you're beginning to feel uncertain. That is the time to sort of tune in and be like, well, what is, what am I feeling uncertain about? You know, have mm-hmm. I been staring at the screen for too long? Mm-hmm. Do I know who I'm really chatting with? You know, what, what is making me pause about uploading the story to this website or the song to this website? You know, it's, it makes you, I mean, that's the time to kind of breathe in and reconnect to deeper principles so that you can stave off the uncertainty. Um, I don't know if you've ever been like uh, addicted to like a, a show, like a TV show, like binge watching I've a TV I've just show. come off an addiction <laughs> to Sense8. I was like heavily addicted to Sense8. Exactly. So that feeling, that's the feel good thing, right? So like I watched the Mandalorian on, you know, baby Yoda or whatever, the child. I was just like, so like been watching the Mandalorian. I think I've seen it like three or four times. And that's like the gratifying part of the pleasure, right? But the bad part about it is that, well, I'm like glued to the television, you know, and it's collecting data about me because it's all streaming now through, we have a smart TV. So it's all streaming. So it's collecting all this information about my viewing, the ha- viewing habits of our family, what we purchase, all this aggregating it together. I'm giving that to them in exchange to satisfy my addiction to seeing a puppet, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to seeing a, a green headed puppet, you know? And so I have to like double check. I have to kind of check myself and say, well, where do I really want to put my, my energy right now as a mother, you know, as, as, a, as, as somebody who cares for my family, as, you know, as a friend, like, Mm. is that where I need to be putting my energy, Mm. you know? And I'm not saying that it's, these are inherently, it's like not saying that the Mandalorian is inherently bad, right? (laughs) It's a great show, (laughs) but you know, it just makes us pause and think about things like moderation 
and boundaries. Oh, yeah. And especially when there's an intent, especially when there's an intent to capture your time like that and manipulate your time away from away from you and away from your family and away from these spaces that we need to be connecting to if we want to continue to humanize our relationships and, and create that strength of our bonds, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling like when you end a show and you're like, there's like a certain feeling of loss, like what am I going to do now? <laughs> Grief. I was like, I was like, I'm, I feel like I'm grieving since eight. And so, and so I went on to Twitter to look at like all of the posts about sense eight to go, well, can I at least see how other people are talking about sense eight? That'll give me a sense of... <laughs> Exactly. That's how they get you. I mean, they just know, you know, how we are as humans, how we need to be gratified. And so that's, that's the point where we are, we had do, I think as indigenous peoples need to inject a little bit of discipline. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't mean discipline in like a carceral way, but uh, it's, it's a spiritual training, you know, like what, what am I finding my energies attracted to? What am I letting into my mind? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, we've like that's that's been fascinating chatting with you about all of this. Thank you so much. I think I've gone like way over the usual podcast time, but that's because <laughs> yeah. it was so interesting. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I I only wish that we could actually physically be in the same room. It'll happen. It'll happen in the it next few happen. years, likely. Yeah, we'll. I've get been missing all of our, you know, indigenous relations. Um, you know, usually would have been to like the permanent forum by now. I would have hosted a couple of people here by now, or I might have gone over there by now. And I'm like, that's the other kind of grief I've had going on this year has just been, I'm missing my indigenous brothers and sisters who are yeah. like that step just, just enough outside of my indigenous fam, like still my indigenous family, but not so close that they annoy me like the ones up the road. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. but I can still be indigenous with so yeah but it will it will happen and I'm so looking forward to when we can share that space again Marissa thank you again so much yes thank you much love to you and to your family and hopefully everybody stays safe and happy during these challenging times yeah absolutely we've been following especially what's been happening with the Navajo Nation and, yeah. and all of our indigenous people, you know, brothers and sisters over there and, and mindful of the elections coming up, but just like really mindful of that, of what you, all of you guys have been through. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to send you guys all of our love and solidarity um, over your way as well. Tina, oh, thank, you. thank you so much. Yes, we're going to need all the prayers in the world. Yes, <laughs> yes we can yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, you can do it. All right, sister. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.